uh, thing to put on there with the verse, but I lost it. <laughs> it's uh, Ezekiel 34, 1 through 31. Uh, if you can, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And also, afterwards, if you'll stay in this chapter, we're going to use this in the sermon quite a bit. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord of God, or the Lord God. All shepherds of Israel who have been feeding, you have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts. Since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves, and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. If the shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out of, from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with a the good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat of the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. It is, is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture? And to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And mustn't my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side, side and shoulders and thrust all the weak with your horns, Till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. 
I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will send down the showers in their season, that they shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Again, as Mike mentioned, keep a finger there in Ezekiel 34. We will come back to it. Turn with me also in your Bibles. Well, you keep a finger in Ezekiel 34. Turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 21. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and keeps following, and, and, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, that they, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays, lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a higher hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf scatters them, or snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for your scripture, Lord, that is, is so timely. And Lord, it never wears. 
away. It never wears of being, of being applicable. But Lord, the message is so clear too. God, I pray that we would hear your word and that we would hear, hear what you would teach us today through this passage. In your name, amen. amen. This passage here in John chapter 10 is really a continuation of exactly what was going on in John chapter 9. There's no break here. There's a break in the chapter, but there's no break in the, con- in the continuity of what's going on. If you, were to, if you were to finish chapter 9 and start reading chapter 10 right away, you would see no interruption. There's no lapse of time. There's nothing like that. In fact, we can tell this because the Gospel of John never introduces a new section with the phrase, truly, truly, I say to you. Every time in the Gospel of John that we've seen Jesus use that phrase, it has always been in connection with with something that has already been going on. These authoritative words of Jesus are always part of a bigger discussion. Further, the end of this passage ties this speech from, uh, from Jesus back to the healing of the man born blind. Look back again at verse 19. It says, There is division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said... These are not the, ones, the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Remember last week in John chapter 9, we saw Jesus heal a man who was born blind. And here we have that is still in the minds of the people that Jesus is talking to. It tells us that that, 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 just, that clarifies that this, for this, uh, this section right here, this speech that Jesus gives, is in direct correlation and direct connection to the healing of the blind man. Further, we also, if you remember from last week, we're not certain when chapter 9 takes place. We know that there is a three-month period between the Feast of Tabernacles and the, uh, the Feast of Dedication that takes place and starts in verse 22 of chapter 10. But we're not sure when these things are taking place as far as within that three-month period. We know for sure that, uh, that this section of chapter 10 follows chapter 9. But we're not sure if chapter 9 follows immediately what takes place in chapter 8. It, it's very possible that the end of the Feast of Tabernacles is still taking place here in, in, in chapter 9 and chapter, and chapter 10. Whatever the case may be of when it takes place in that three-month period, we can definitely see that the opinion of Jesus has not changed much since chapter 8. If you remember in chapter 8, the, Jesus had spoken very boldly to the people there. Very, very abruptly, even told them that they were not sons of Abraham, they were not sons of God, that rather they were sons of Satan, their father, who sought to kill them. And they said, this guy's got to be insane. He must, have, he must be possessed by a demon. And we, here we see that same opinion. Look again at verse 20. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And then you have this other group again that says, how can a man that's possessed by a demon heal somebody who's been born blind? Right? There's, there's, this, there's this continuation. We've been seeing this again and again throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus teaches and people are confused. They're not sure how to understand Jesus. There's division over how to take Jesus. Some think that they're going to believe in him and follow him, but then we find out they truly don't believe in him and they're not really following him. Some think, well... This guy's got to be somebody. I mean, he's, he can't be possessed by a demon. He can't be evil, right? He's doing all these miracles. And we see the same, the same, uh, the same thing throughout that, that, that these people are confused by Jesus. Or they're at least, uh, uh, there's a lot, at least division among the, among the people. 
Um, Throughout this passage, we can see much wisdom and insight given to pastors and leaders in the church. If this was a pastor's conference, I would certainly preach a much different message than I will today. Um, I I will not neglect those areas of application, because I think they definitely uh, have things to speak to us, especially those who are leaders here in the church. Uh, Yet I want to focus more on what God is teaching to his congregation throughout the passage. To the deacons and staff, I strongly urge you to think through this passage with specific attention. Two, correctly leading the church. In fact, this same, this same passage was preached by a pastor named Shailin. Uh, the whole sermon is on YouTube. His sermon more adore directly approaches this passage through the lens of biblical leadership. But overall, we see if we look at this passage as a whole, the main message of this text before us is that Jesus is the good shepherd, the only one through whom we may have salvation. Today, we'll look at three major applications of this passage. First, we must recognize the voice of the good shepherd. Second, we must avoid the dangers of thieves and robbers. And third, we must follow the sacrificial authority of the good shepherd. So as we move forward here, the first point that we see in these first couple verses is that we must recognize the voice of the good shepherd. Look back at these verses. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow and they will flee him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. First of all, what I, want to, what I, what I think is so important for us to understand when we come to this passage as a whole, this verses 1 through 21, we need to understand this first section here uh, as we clarify and, and, and define what this particular story is that Jesus is telling, what this, this illustration is. Probably, uh, again, your, your translations, are, my translation calls it a figure of speech. Um, to call it a parable would be, uh, would be unhelpful because a parable would suggest that there is a one-to-one correlation to everything he's talking about. Now, the problem with that is because Jesus switches the metaphor throughout this passage. At this point, he says he's the shepherd. Then in verse 7, he says he's the door. Which is he? The shepherd of the door. Jesus is both, right? What Jesus is showing is that, is that he is both in this, in this particular story. So when we understand, we must understand about this verses 1 through 6, which, which would be the main story that Jesus is unpacking in verses 7 through uh, 18, um, that that this is, it's, it's more an illustration. It's more of a, it has more fluid understanding. There's, there's, it's, there's not a one-to-one correlation to everything here. So we have to make sure we understand that in our minds. Jesus is not confused when he comes to this. He's not confused about his own metaphor. Uh, rather, uh, he, he is, he's using both of these aspects to, de- to describe his own saving ministry. Second of all, we're introduced to a group of people in verse, in verse 1, a group of people that are called the thieves and the robbers. We'll get more to this uh, in, our, in our, next, uh, our next point here. But uh, our immediate context 
suggests that the thieves and robbers are the religious leaders, the blind guides in chapter 9. If you remember at the end of chapter 9, the, the Pharisees and these religious leaders said, are we the people that are blind? And what does Jesus say then? Yep, you guys are the thieves and robbers in chapter 10. That's who you are. You guys are the blind guides, the thieves and robbers that the shepherd is protecting his sheep from. So that's, that's we'll, we'll, again, we'll get in the, next, in the next paragraph, we'll unpack more of who, who these thieves and robbers are and what they do and what they look like. But for now, it's, we need to understand that in the immediate context, what's going on right here, the thieves and robbers are very likely a reference to, to those particular individuals that we saw in chapter 9. Jesus then continues on. He says, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. That makes sense, right? Who comes in your front door? Well, or your back door, whatever's what you use most, right? We use our back door most. Who's going to come in the back door? Probably me, right? Probably my family, right? Those people who have the privilege or knowledge, again, you'd be your good friends. Strangers come to the front door. Now, where's the thief going to go? Is the thief going to come knocking on the door, ring the door, and be like, hey, can I come in here and take some of your stuff? No. They're going to sneak in. They might come through a window. They might try to find some other sneaky way to come in, bust the locks, whatever they might do. They're going to find some alternative route to get into your house. Jesus is saying the same thing about thieves and robbers. Now, again, how exactly this particular pasture is, this particular fencing ground is, is not clear. There's a lot of debate and discussion for what this particular illustration might be. Needless to say that at the bare minimum, there is a door to the sheepfold, and that is where the shepherd enters climbing over the wall, coming from some other direction. That's where thieves and robbers are going to come from. They're not going to come from the door. Jesus says here that the thieves and robbers climb in another way. He, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. He's the one who owns the sheep. He's the one who takes care of the sheep. He's going to come from the door. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own by name and leads them out. What a glorious truth that alone is. Your salvation is not by accident. If you are a Christian, God knows you individually by name. And he cares about you that deeply. Amen. He knows his sheep by name and he leads them out. In this context, Jesus is most likely speaking of those of the flock of Israel who he is calling out of Judaism to be his followers. This is made more apparent in verse 16 where Jesus speaks of, a, of, of those who are not of this flock. He's speaking of, his, of the Gentile mission, those who are non-Jews who Jesus will also call to be a part of the flock. We see here Jesus forming his flock. He is calling out his flock from the sheepfold of Judaism, from those who are in this in this in this, uh, this false religion of Judaism, worshiping uh, a God of their own design, uh, a, a misinterpretation of the scriptures, Jesus is calling them out and saying, no, follow me. I'm the Messiah, right? The law does not save you. I save you. Come and follow me. And Jesus is calling them out from the sheepfold. He knows them by name. And we'll see the same as well, that he also seeks sheep from outside the sheepfold, those, those uh, 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 outside of, of Judaism, um, the, the uh, Gentiles specifically. Then he says he goes out before them. Right? It says, it says uh, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out, out all his own, he goes 
before them. Now, again, when we think of shepherds, we may think of more of a Western idea of shepherds, that maybe the shepherd comes from behind and pushes the sheep forward, and maybe sheepdogs kind of help circle the sheep around, help drive them forward. In, West, in a Western context, more Western nations, that's how shepherding would take place. In the Near East, which is where Jesus was at the time in, in, in Israel, how shepherds led their sheep. The shepherds would walk in front of the sheep. Right? There may have been an under-shepherd that would help out and, and kind of draw the back, but the, the shepherd would call out to the sheep, would talk to the sheep, would speak to the sheep and lead from the front, and the sheep would follow him. So that's what Jesus is talking about when he says that he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. We'll get to that here in just a second. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Once again, we see the people not able to understand. We've seen this over and over again. The truth is proclaimed, and yet people still will not understand. The same pattern has also been seen. Those who are not a part of the flock cannot understand what Jesus is talking about here. They can't truly and fully understand. Now, as we look at this illustration from Jesus, we're reminded that we must recognize the voice of the shepherd. It says here that his sheep recognize his voice. But it's also fascinating to me how many people who call themselves Christians today have such a hard time distinguishing between the voice of the shepherd and the voice of strangers. I would suggest that there are at least three reasons why we have a hard time distinguishing between shepherds and strangers. First, we don't read our Bibles. First reason why we, can, why we can't tell the difference between, a shepherd, between the shepherd and strangers, or those who would teach falsely, we don't know our Bibles. Now, I don't mean that we don't read the words, though, some, though for some of us that may be the case, that we don't read the words of our Bibles. But more importantly, we don't study the words. We don't really know our Bibles. Rather, we look to the uh, we, we, don't, uh, we don't find in the scriptures the way uh, um, that, that we don't find in the scriptures the ways that God speaks about himself. Rather, we look to the Bible uh, for a list of self-help instructions for the day. We skip through our Bible searching for a daily promise to hold, to hold up and make ourselves feel better. Our Bible study time is filled with a search for emotional satisfaction rather than being filled with a thirst for knowing the almighty triune God. Because our Bible study time is centered on finding something that helps us feel good, we are immediately drawn to teachers that make us feel good. I heard a so-called preacher this week say that the cross teaches us not about the cost of sin, but about our value to God. He then claimed that heaven bankrupted itself in its attempt to rescue us. First of all, if heaven is bankrupt, then we really have no help in this life. If all of the riches of, the, of heaven have been exhausted, we have nothing to hope in. Amen. Second, if we know our Bibles, we would know that Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We would also know Isaiah 53, 5 that says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
He was not crushed or killed for our value statements so that we could feel great about ourselves. He was crushed because of our sin. But because we are so desperate for our time of Bible reading to be centered on us, we hear a preacher like that make that claim and it makes us feel good. And we believe that must be biblical. That makes me feel good. It must be biblical because it makes me feel good. Scripture promised us that there would be false teachers whose teaching is geared to itching ears, who would rather... Uh, who would rather believe lies than the truth. So why are we surprised when they show up? We cannot think that it is holy for us to be accepting of false teachers. Rather, we must root it out in our lives and run from it. Amen. A second thing that why we maybe don't recognize and can't distinguish between a shepherd and the stranger is because we don't, not only because we don't read our Bibles well, but also because we do not pray well. We learn the voice of God through scripture and through prayer. Scripture is the very words of God speaking to us. Prayer is our chance to communicate with God. What do you talk to God about? For many of us, our prayers are little more than a laundry list of wants from God for ourselves or for others. Our prayers are little, little markers where we feel like uh, we have God by the toes right? I prayed for God to heal grandma. If he doesn't do it, I got him by the, I got him by the toes, right? If we pull, if he pulls us, if he pulls through on this, then he will be worthy of my praise. If we look at the Lord's prayer, which I love that Dee has been teaching this with our children, we will notice that give us this day, our daily bread is only one small aspect of that prayer. Yet that tends to be what dominates our prayers. If you think back, there's, uh, uh, you know, do we we pray uh, for the rest of those aspects of the prayer? If you remember Jesus in the garden with with his disciples, he said this, could you not spend an hour with me in prayer? I have a pastor friend that firmly believes that God does not truly speak back in our prayers until we have spent at least an hour in prayer. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not here to argue about uh, what he has said and whether or not it's possible for God to speak to you in a five-minute prayer versus a one-hour prayer. But I can tell you from my own experience that he's not too far off. My sweetest times in prayer are the times when I've intentionally set aside long periods of at least an hour to spend in prayer. The only times that I can assure that I know God spoke to me have been in those times. Without diligent prayer and without studying scripture, I also believe that those two are closely tied together. In other words, without diligent prayer, we cannot truly understand scripture. And without studying scripture, we cannot truly pray. Apart from those, we cannot know the voice of the shepherd. Third thing that why, why we may not be able to distinguish between the shepherd and the, and the strangers is that we don't know theology. Now, before that scares you, the word theology is simply teaching about God. Every one of us are theologians at some level. Theology, in one sense, is putting the pieces of Scripture together to make biblically accurate conclusions. Oftentimes, we minimize theology as this unimportant thing for seminary students. Such a minimization could not be farther from the truth. 
without knowing how to put the pieces together, we are open to hearing the voice of strangers. So when a book or a movie comes out that, dep- that depicts God as a woman, we might be drawn to the emotional story and somehow believe that the portrayal is acceptable. Because we are, um, uh, because we are drawn to the story emotionally, we completely forget that the Bible is clear how God has revealed himself. Everywhere in scripture, God has revealed himself with masculine pronouns like he. If God has revealed himself with masculine pronouns and has revealed himself as father, son, and Holy Spirit, who are you, O oh man, to believe that you can believe in God however you want to? Amen. Or we may see a television preacher say, don't go to church for God. Go for you because God wants you to be happy. That is blasphemy. God is is first and foremost not concerned about your happiness. He is first and foremost concerned with his glory. Be at church because God commands you to fellowship with the saints. Be at church because it's God's vehicle for evangelism and learning biblical truth. If we know our theology, we would know the value of our churches, and we would know how much God is concerned with every practice of our church, from baptism and church membership to how we approach leadership in our churches. Second thing, not only must we be able to, uh, must we know and learn the voice of our shepherd, but second, we must avoid the dangers of thieves and robbers. Look again in verse seven, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but sheep, that the sheep do not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Amen. Jesus says that all who come before him are thieves and robbers. Now, again, in the very near context, this is probably most, most clearly a reference to the religious teachers of his day that were thieves and robbers, just like we saw earlier in the chapter. And most clearly, it may, may have also be including some pseudo-prophets that considered themselves to be the Messiah or considered some other, or considered them to be teaching the way to God, but really they were leading to false teaching. Either way, Jesus is clear that thieves and robbers do not have the best intentions of the sheep in mind. Look again at verse 10. It says, thief, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Turn back over then to Ezekiel chapter 34. I want to show this to you. I think, I, think, I believe that, that Jesus here in John chapter 10, he is showing himself to be the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. I believe these two chapters are so closely tied together. And I hope that you saw that as we read them side by side. I hope that you saw some of these things come together here. Remember, Jesus described the thieves and robbers as coming to kill and steal and destroy. Look at the bad shepherds that are rebuked, rebuked in Ezekiel 34. Look at verse 2. What are they accused of? They are told, um, uh, verse 2 here, sorry, I lost my place. Thus says the Lord, ah, shepherds of Israel who have, who have been feeding yourselves. What have they been doing? They're not feeding the sheep, rather they are feeding themselves. In John 10, what is that? They're stealing from the sheep. It also says in verse 3, you eat the fat. 
They're stealing from the sheep. You clothe yourselves with the wool. They're stealing from the sheep. It says here that, they, that uh, <clears throat> you slaughter the fat ones, right? They come to kill and destroy. You do not feed the sheep, kill and destroy. You've not strengthened the weak, in verse 4, kill and destroy. The sick you have not healed, kill and destroy. The injured you have not bound up, kill and destroy. The stray you have not brought back, kill and destroy. The lost you have not sought, kill and destroy. With force and harshness you have ruled, kill and destroy. The thieves and robbers are these evil shepherds in Ezekiel 34. What does a thief and robber look like? They do not have the best intentions when it comes to the sheep. They're either seeking their own financial gain, they're seeking to draw the energy from the sheep, or worse, they're willing to lead the sheep to, to being unhealthy and even dead because they're not concerned about the sheep. They're not concerned about the proper treatment of the sheep. Jesus then contrasts himself with this in chapter 10. Keep a finger there in Ezekiel 34. We'll come back again. He says that as opposed to the shepherds, the, these, these thieves and robbers who come to kill and destroy, what does he do? I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. In contrast to the thieves and robbers who come to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus brings life, abundant life. This is certainly not a promise for health, wealth, or prosperity in the eyes of the world. Such a claim that from this verse would be directly opposed to the scriptures. Such a claim would be to talk talk would be the talk of a thief and robber. Riches, health, worldly success, etc., are fleeting and could never satisfy. Rather, Jesus offers an abundant life, one that could never be one that could not be imagined through means that could never be imagined. Truly, the ultimate fulfillment comes on the day we stand in glory. But even today, Jesus brings meaning to the life of a Christian. The answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything is not 42, as Douglas Adams in his classic atheistic book, A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, would suggest. No, the answer, the one who, who gives meaning to life, the universe, and everything is Jesus. He is the one who brings life and gives it more abundantly. We've already mentioned how we must learn to recognize the voice of the shepherd against the voice of strangers. Here, we see that we must avoid the dangers of thieves and robbers. We have seen their attributes. They, seek to, they, they steal and kill and destroy by taking advantage of the sheep rather than caring for them. The strangers, the false teachers, are not concerned about the glory of God because otherwise they would not teach falsely. False teachers, no matter how much you like what they say, do not have your best interest in mind. False teachers will recommend that you not be concerned about your spiritual health, or they will minimize the value of theology, because if you knew those things, you would certainly find out that they have error. I want to speak briefly to our leaders here, to our staff and to our deacons and even to myself. Are we evil shepherds? Are we thieves and robbers? Are we using our church for selfish gain, whether for money or status or authority? If we are unconcerned about the overall health of the church, and by that I do not mean numbers, then we are evil shepherds. There's a book called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. 
In that book, the author suggests nine things that are essential to a healthy church. Expository or verse-by-verse preaching, biblical theology, a biblical understanding of the gospel, a biblical understanding of conversion, a biblical understanding of evangelism, a biblical understanding of church membership, a biblical understanding and practice of church discipline, and a biblical understanding of discipleship, and a biblical understanding of church leadership. Since I believe that the Bible agrees with the author, I would suggest that if we lead our church toward anything less, we would be evil shepherds, allowing this congregation to fail and to die. If we leaders are not concerned about the real health of our church and are not leading our church toward that health, we are the robbers who are seeking to kill and to steal and kill and destroy. Loving this congregation will lead them to true biblical health just like Jesus leads to life, an abundant life. Third, we see, we see not only that we must uh, recognize the voice of the shepherd and, and distinguish that between the voice of the shepherd and the voice of strangers. Secondly, we also saw that we must, uh, that, uh, we must avoid thieves and robbers. But third here, we see that we must follow the sacrificial authority of the good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Look at that in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Ultimately, we see that this designation is nothing less than Jesus' revelation as the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. If you go back to Ezekiel 34 one last time, or what, hold on, you'll need it for one more time after this. Look at verse 23. God, after rebuking the, the evil shepherds, says that he will lead his people. And then verse 23 says this, I will set over them a shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince over them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Who is the shepherd that God sets over his sheep? It's Jesus. He is the servant David. He is the ultimate fulfillment. Remember, David was a, was a, uh, a shepherd who became a king. Jesus here is the shepherd who is also the king. So in that sense, he is very similar to David. So Ezekiel is correct in calling him David. But that David is pointing to a greater David. This David, this one from the lineage of David, Jesus Christ. Rather than pillage and abuse, the, Jesus is the shepherd, sorry, who will stand as the opposite to the evil shepherds. Rather than pillage and abuse the sheep, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. And we have verse 12 and 13. Comes this, very, comes this very interesting aspect here. He says, he who is a hired hand, this is another person that has been introduced here. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. This hired hand, hired hand one scholar explains it this way. Jesus compares negatively the good shepherd to a hired worker who is employed to care for things that he neither bears full responsibility for nor owns. In the ancient world, the hired, hired worker was viewed in a derogatory sense, those who acted for pay, not for loyalty or friendship. For that reason, when the hired worker is personally threatened, he saves himself, leaving the sheep in harm's way. The very moment the hired worker is needed is the exact moment he fails to perform. Even with good intentions, he is primarily self-interested. There is no personal connection with the sheep. And real quickly, as a side note of application, again to our leadership, do we act as the hired hand does? Do we run from loyally serving this congregation? 
Do you run from the difficult aspects of church life? Is your leadership primarily self-interested or self-centered? Why are you leading? Is it out of a desire for power and authority or out of a true love and care for the congregation? Verse 14 then, Jesus here explains this. He says, I am the good shepherd again. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. Jesus stands in stark contrast to this hired worker, just as he stands in contrast to the thieves and robbers. Jesus knows and cares for each of us individually. Even more exciting, Jesus compares his deep connection with his sheep to the deep connection that he has with the father. What an amazing truth. Second half of verse 15, Jesus says this, and he's repeated this again. Um, And I lay down my life for the sheep in verse 15. This is now the second time this phrase has come up. Um, This is the second time this phrase has come up, and it will not be the last. In fact, Jesus uses this phrase four times in this section alone. Most shepherds would absolutely risk their life for the sheep. We see in the Old Testament that David battled a lion with his bare hands to to protect his flock. But far greater than David, he does not merely risk his life, he lays it down in line with the Father's will. Far from being accidental, Jesus' death is precisely what qualifies him to be the good shepherd, a point presupposed in in Hebrews 13.20, which acknowledges that Jesus is that great shepherd of the sheep. And by his death, far from exposing his flock to further ravages, he draws them to himself. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. That doesn't mean he's just willing to die and he's willing to risk himself for the sheep. In fact, Jesus' purpose in coming to this earth was to, for the purpose of laying down his life, dying on a cross for us. Not only is he willing to give his life, he came to give his life. Look at then in verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Again, if we were to look back at Ezekiel chapter 34, 23, we see that Jesus is the one shepherd who takes care of the sheep. says, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. That speaks of unity. There's one shepherd that unifies the flock of God. One shepherd. It's not multiple shepherds. I, as pastor of your church, of this church, am not just the, I'm not the shepherd. I'm an under shepherd, under the great shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. That's made clear in in 1 Peter 5. Jesus then says in verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I laid down my life and I will, that I may take it up again. For this reason, the Father loves me. The love of the Father for the Son is obviously prior to God's triune love for the world. The Trinity existed before the creation of the world. It is not that the Father withholds his love until Jesus agrees to, go, to give up his life on the cross and rise, and rise again. Rather, the love of the Father for the Son is eternally linked with the unqualified obedience of the Son to the Father. His utter dependence on him culminating in this in this, uh, in this act of obedience now just before him. Willingly, uh, willingness to bear the shame of the cross, the isolation, rejection of death, the, the sin and curse reserved for the Lamb of God. 
so Jesus says this here. He's not saying that the Father loves me because I'm laying down my life for the sheep as if God is not loving him until he does that. Rather, God has always loved the Son. The Father has always loved the Son in complete Trinitarian unity. But what, what marks the Son as distinct from the Father is the Son's absolute submission to the Father's will, even to the point of death on a cross, which he takes on for our salvation. Verse 18, uh, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father, the authority Jesus has over his death and resurrection is because of the close tie between him and the father. The authority Jesus has is given to him by the father. Thus, Jesus also has authority over our salvation and over our lives. Just as David was a shepherd who became a king, Jesus is the good shepherd who is also our king. So as, as we close out here, this last point of application, we must recognize the voice of the shepherd. We must avoid thieves and robbers. And third, we must follow the sacrificial authority of the good shepherd. What does that mean? What does it mean to follow the, uh, the sacrificial authority of the good shepherd? We see that Jesus does indeed have authority over his death and over his resurrection. That means that he's God. That means that he is worthy of worship. That means if you are here today and you are not a Christian, that what Jesus is calling you to do is to trust him, to believe in him as your one true good shepherd because he is the only way to salvation. He is the shepherd, the only one who is allowed to come through the gate. He is the door, the only way by which we have access into the fold of God. The exclusiveness of the gospel comes out in full blast in this particular passage. There's only one way to salvation. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You can't find another path and still get to God. You can't find another, another way of salvation and still think that you'll be safe. No, there's only one path to salvation. That is by believing in. That means trusting in. That means fully trusting in. You've seen trust falls, right? That's laying completely back, putting your total faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. His death on the cross and his resurrection, conquering sin and Satan and death in your life. That's salvation. That's what it means to, to trust the sacrificial authority, to have faith in the sacrificial authority of Jesus Christ. He has that authority. Whether you believe in him or not, he still has authority over your life. Amen. What aspect of that authority are you going to submit to? His authority as your savior or his authority as your judge? One day we will stand before his authority. And there will not be a second chance. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we have to look at your word, to see the gospel ring out clearly and truly. Lord, to see even these tough things that, that, Lord, we need to know our Bibles. We need to be spending time in prayer. Lord, we need to be studying your word and studying, studying your theology and learning more about you so that we can better protect ourselves from strangers, better protect ourselves from thieves and robbers. Lord, as leaders in the church, we need to prevent ourselves from becoming the thieves and robbers and hired workers that you describe in such ugly terms. Lord, may we be following your example as good shepherd, as leaders of this church, that we may seek the good of your people and whatever that might mean. 
God, I pray now for those here who, are, who do not know you as Savior. Lord, you are the good shepherd. Through you alone is their salvation. I pray that they may give their lives to you, that they may submit to the authority of you as the good shepherd. In your name, amen.